Let's take our opportunity to turn in our scriptures and uh, turn our attention now to uh, the teaching of God's word, our opportunity to, to study together. Glad that you've been able to make it today, kind of a dreary day. You know, there's a lot of sickness besides just in the Taves family. There are a lot of people that are sick, and we should definitely be uh, in prayer for them, but I'm glad you were able to make it today. Um, before, we, before we get to the message um, in, our, in our time together, um, I thought it might be beneficial to take just a few short moments and comment on the events of last week. I hope that uh, in last week's message, if you're here uh, last week, Adam took some time to uh, spend some time talking about a Christian perspective on politics and on government. Uh, I hope that was an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. And I just kind of wanted to follow that up with, a, with an after the fact, uh, after elections, just a couple um, encouragements I would have to, to give to you maybe in, in your perspective on, on last week. Um, and one, let me just encourage you that uh, if you're a person who um, has worry and care, that you turn your care over to the sovereign God. Um, worry is just never an appropriate Christian response. Um, there's, there's no time or place for doom and gloom uh, in the Christian approach to life. And even as we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount, um, part of Matthew 6 on our Lord's command to us, we're to, to take no care, take no worry um, about our lives. In fact, he said, sufficient for each day is its own trouble. So if the days in the future hold, hold trouble for us, we don't need to borrow for them today. So if you are a person who last week has unsettled you and you carry worries, let me just encourage you to turn those over to the sovereign God uh, who holds all things in his hands and is certainly in control. And we don't, we don't need to worry or borrow trouble from tomorrow that we don't already have. Um, speaking of that sovereign God, I, let me just encourage you as well to rejoice in God's sovereign control. Um, we cannot claim that God is sovereign and then embrace a fatalistic or despairing outlook on any event in our lives, uh, including an election. And maybe you weren't, um, maybe you're not despairing or fatalistic because of last week, but maybe you are. And if you are, let me just encourage you that we can rejoice in God's sovereignty. Um, sovereignty is not just the button we push whenever things don't go our way. It's something that we rejoice in constantly. And we have a good God who does all things well. And there should actually be joy in our hearts right now for, for God and his and his working and his ways. It's certainly true that we can have genuine grief at the thought of the unleashing of abortion and many other moral evils that Obama has promised to do. Um, and yet at the same time, we have confidence that God works. Um, he always works his plan. And so his plan for the gospel and his people stayed in perfect step and his kingdom did not take a hit last week. Um, he works out his right and perfect plans and we should rejoice in that. Let me encourage you as well to pray for Barack Obama, who is God's appointed president as well as all the others that have been appointed into office. It's an amazing thing with God's sovereignty and the means that he uses that uh, he used people who voted to accomplish his sovereign choice. And so we need to pray for the salvation of our president. Um, we need to pray that God would stem the tide of unrighteousness. We need to pray that we would be blessed with better choices than we deserve. And we can pray that our religious freedoms will be preserved. There is much that we can be in prayer about as we rejoice and as we turn our cares over to the sovereign God. And lastly, lastly, let me just encourage you to recommit to the gospel. Um, Tuesday may have unveiled maybe a mistaken emphasis and trust for you uh, if your world is rocked right now. I mean, if you're feeling like you're reeling and you don't know which way is up, perhaps I just um, is a reflection on, on where your hope has been placed. Um, if you are overly exuberant right now, uh, perhaps that shows that your hope is not in the gospel changing lives, but it's on people. Um, if you think marriage has been preserved and that now people will have a biblical perspective, perhaps you haven't thought through the principles of the gospel and how that changes people's hearts. 
let me just encourage you to recommit to the gospel. Um, what your neighbors and coworkers need are not Republican ideals, and it's not democratic hope and change. What they need is the gospel. And so let me just encourage you to recommit to the gospel. Um, it's our hope. It's the hope of the world and, and not our government. And so let's be trusting people who are rejoicing people that pray and that are committed to the gospel proclamation, uh, no matter what, you, whether you're pleased or displeased with our government situation. Okay? So just a few words on that, and I hope that's helpful for you. All right, but what we're here for is to turn on our Bibles, and we're going to turn our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's always a debate for me whenever there's a unique opportunity uh, to speak or we have something out of the ordinary to either just continue where we've been or to take a little side trail and uh, have a unique morning. And that's what I've ended up choosing to do this morning. Instead of continuing in Matthew, I'd like to turn in, in 1 Corinthians and, and actually um, study with you today the topic of humble orthodoxy. We're going to have a, a topical message today, and um, just as in verse-by-verse verse preaching, which is our norm, we, we think that's the best approach to go verse-by-verse verse through a passage and just consecutively work our way through. Um, so that is our normal pattern. This is something that is unusual, and, and we break from the normal pattern. Um, and in order to give specific attention on what God word say, God's Word says on a particular topic, and and when we do that, we have to be so careful that we don't import our ideas into what Scripture says. And that's always the danger when you go from topic to topic, that you're going to start talking about something that you care about and that, that you import your view on Scripture. And we can't do that. What we're going to do is see that 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 um, present the, the dual idea of humility as well as orthodoxy. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word orthodoxy. Uh, maybe you're thinking, man, as soon as we get David away from those kids, he uses words that, that he never is allowed to use with them. I don't know. But uh, when we talk about orthodoxy, all we're simply talking about is right doctrine. All right? We're just talking about right doctrine. Orthodoxy is the body of doctrines that are essential to faith. Orthodoxy is consistency with revelation. Right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about orthodoxy. We're not talking about the Greek Orthodox Church. or uh, We're just talking about right doctrine. Um, and right doctrine is extremely important, and perhaps never more so uh, than our day when doctrine itself is under attack. Um, doctrine is under attack from a lot of different sources, and that's nothing new. The world has always been opposed to doctrine, and unbelievers have always been opposed to um, the careful statement of truth and thinking through truth. What's, I think, a little bit unique in our day is that many of the attacks are coming from within those who profess to be Christians, and they attack the value of doctrine and um, say that we're making too much to always be talking about doctrine, and um, really the attack is from within the church. And in fact, there are some within the church today who I think have really confused uh, the idea of, of humility with uncertainty and complexity. They've said, look, this whole doctrinal thing, we, we don't want to get too rabid on doctrine. Um, we just don't want to be one-track people. Uh, we need to be humble people. And what that means is hum humility, in today's lingo, means uncertainty. I mean, sure, maybe you think that's what Scripture says, and, but maybe it is and, and maybe it's not. Um, and so, sure, it's fine for you to say, this is what I believe, this is doctrine according to me, but let's not pretend that doctrine is something that's actually objective fact that we can all either agree or disagree with. It's, it's what's good for you. And so let's be humble, which is another way of saying, let's just be uncertain. And I just can't really say if this is so or not. And they also like to bring up issues of complexity. It's just humble to say, man, people look at Scripture so many different ways, and there's so many religions all across the world. It's so complex that let's just be humble and say, ah, oh, man, maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. Uh, let's just take it or leave it, and let's not get all rabid about doctrine. It's kind of like the modern mantra is, if there's one thing we know for sure, it's that we don't know anything for sure. 
All right. And so and we, we just don't know. And this thinking is very much in the church. In fact, uh, there's a man who's a very popular um, writer and he makes comments like this. Certainty is overrated. History teaches us that there were a lot of people who thought they were certain and we found out that they weren't. And he goes on to say this specifically about orthodoxy. If for you, orthodox means finally getting it right or getting it straight, all right, which is exactly what I've said it is. So he's talking about me here and hopefully about you too. He says, if that's what it means to you, mine's a pretty disappointing, curvy orthodoxy. A generous orthodoxy, this man writes, in contrast to the tense, narrow, controlling, or critical orthodoxies of so much of Christian history, doesn't take itself too seriously. It is humble. It doesn't claim too much. It admits it walks with a limp. In other words, it doesn't, it's not really sure. It's not really certain. And that's what humility is. Far from a a generous orthodoxy that this man would claim that is the thinking in so many churches and churches around you and around me and all across America who would say, that's a generous kind of orthodoxy I want to subscribe to. The result of that kind of thinking is actually a deceived unorthodoxy actually leads to a departure from right doctrine and not the discovery of right doctrine. I think think you hear a lot about doctrine and orthodoxy from us. It's something that, um, I mean, from the very beginning, there has been a lot of, let's talk about truth and let's go back to orthodoxy and what is right and what does God's word say. And, And I hope you understand the rationale as well as the rightness of pursuing doctrinal clarity and carefulness. I mean, there's a reason we do that, and I think it's a right reason But at the same time, I'm concerned this morning that we also apply the biblical principles of humility to our understanding of the truth. Because right thinking must always be accompanied by a right attitude. Otherwise, our right doctrine is sullied. It's it's tarnished when we say, here's the right doctrine, and we hold it in an arrogant way. Or when we come off as, as judgmental people because we have the exclusive corner on truth. Our right doctrine that we claim to have is is shown to be not so well grasped if we don't hold on the doctrine with humility, the biblical description of humility, not uncertainty and, and not uncare, but rather humility is a right understanding, a right perspective of ourselves because we understand the greatness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. That's what humility is. It's a right perspective that we get from knowing what God has to say about us, about who we are. And a right perspective leads to submission. That's at the heart of what humility is. It's submission because of a right perspective, not uncertainty, not unclarity, but rather submission. Orthodoxy, or in other words, right doctrine and humility are two necessary sides of the same coin. Because without orthodoxy, without right doctrine, your humility will only earn you hell. That's all you'll get. If you don't have the right doctrine, uh, if you don't have the truth of salvation, then all of your humility, all of your humble actions and your humble words They're all just like filthy rags in God's sight. They're works of righteousness that don't add up to anything without right doctrine. And yet, without humility, our orthodoxy shamefully steals from and it distracts from God's glory. In other words, you say, I've got the right doctrine, but I don't have the right attitude of humility. And you actually tarnish the glory of God and you distract people from seeing the greatness of who he is because of your attitude. And so your right doctrine hasn't actually promoted the glory of God like it ought. So what we're going to do this morning is walk through 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. We're going to take an overview approach. Um, So this is going to be a lot different than uh, what we normally do. Um, It's both topical and it's both overview. 
And we're going to see interwoven themes of humility and orthodoxy and how these two must go together. And we're going to see from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 4 that Paul gives us three main thoughts about humble orthodoxy. And first we're going to see that humble orthodoxy begins at the cross, right? Humble orthodoxy, in other words, a right perspective on truth starts at the cross. And then it bows before the source of truth. And lastly, it believes the truth about man, all right? A right a right attitude and right doctrine is always going to start at the cross. And that's what we see in verse number 18. Let's read together 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul has just given his introduction to the Corinthians. Uh, he's just told them that he's so concerned about the divisions that they have, and people are, are saying, I follow Paul, and and some are saying, I follow other teachers like, like Peter and Apollos. Others are just saying, I follow Christ. And Paul says, look, I'm glad that I haven't done anything that make you think you're following me. I'm not a baptizer. I haven't gone around baptizing people so that people say I got baptized into Paul's religion. And he says, I, I didn't even come to baptize, but, but to preach, not we, even with eloquent words, to preach the gospel so that the cross of Christ isn't emptied of power. And then he gets to verse 18, and he explains why is it that the cross of Christ, he doesn't want it to be emptied of power by eloquent words. And he says, this is why, the word of the cross, right? That's, that's the doctrine part, the word. This is the essential message of the cross, that Jesus died a substitutionary death. He paid for our sins when he died on the cross. That's the word of the cross. That's doctrine. That word of the cross, he says, it's folly to those who are perishing. In other words, it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It makes no sense. This is foolishness that Jesus would die on a cross and that somehow that takes away my sins. That's, that's what those who are perishing, that's their perspective. It says those who are perishing. In other words, they're in the act of perishing. They're perishing right now. There's only one other group, Paul says, besides those who are perishing. And it's in the last part of the verse. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, there's a big contrast in our world today. There are those who are perishing who say that the cross is foolishness. And then there are those who are in the process of being saved. And those people say, no, the cross is the power of God. It's not folly, it's power. The cross itself, it's not just a message of power, but the, but the cross and the substitutionary death of Christ itself is powerful. You say, all right, what is this? I see the doctrine part. What does this have to do with humility? Well, it has to do with humility because Paul calls us here to boast in the wisdom and power of God. See, those who are perishing, they've elevated their perspective of wisdom to say the cross is foolishness. And it actually takes humility to say, no, I'm going to believe what God's word says. I'm going to believe the word of the cross and I'm going to acknowledge that it's power. That takes humility. Paul's calling us to boast in the wisdom and the power of God. And he keeps talking about wisdom and power. We see in verse number 19, he says, it's written, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. God says, I'm going to set aside all of the great ideas that people have, and I'm going to do that through the cross. In fact, in verse 20, he says, speaking of, where's, where's the one who is wise? All right, where's the, where's the incredible wise person? Where's the scribe, perhaps referring to the Jewish scribes? Where's the debater of this age? Maybe referring to the Greeks who love to debate. Where are those guys and their great ideas? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's assumption here is absolutely in comparison to Christian truth, all of the world's wisdom uh, doesn't amount to any genuine life change. It is not powerful. It is actually weak. He says in verse 21, 
since in the wisdom of God, all right, in God's ultimate wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, all right? The path of salvation is not through wisdom. God has decreed it to be that way. So it takes humility for you to say, I want to come to God, but you don't get to come to God through your own wisdom. You don't get to make your own way. Uh, we don't get to invent our own kind of religion. It's not, wisdom is not the way to God. It says it pleased God. In other words, this is what God wanted. He delighted that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So what appears to be ridiculous to the world, that whole message of the cross and a dead Jesus and a dead God and then the resurrection, which they thought was even more absurd, um, all of that, that's what God chose through that, what looked like folly um, to save those who believe. And if you're in this room this morning and you're in that category, those who believe, it's because you have been willing to say what others have said is folly. I'm going to embrace that as truth from God. And I'm going to submit to that. I'm going to boast in the wisdom and the power of God. And in Paul's context, there are two distinct groups who were saying that the cross was foolishness and they were the Jews and the Greeks. Verse 22, he says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews wanted to see powerful displays, impressive miracles, awesome sights. The Greeks, they, they, wanted, they wanted wisdom. It's probably specifically talking about the Corinthian Greeks, uh, although Greek was also words applied to all Gentiles, but they were in this pursuit of knowledge. It was constantly about knowledge and their philosophers and their wisdom, and, and that was their constant pursuit. And in contrast to that, verse 23, Paul tells us, in contrast to giving amazing, powerful signs as well as um, being amazingly wise, we preach Christ crucified. That was the mess. That's the doctrine. Jesus Christ crucified. And that doctrine demands humility because we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Stumbling block there has a, it's a massive offense. The Jews looked at the cross and they had been liking the miracles that Jesus had been doing. They liked it when he fed the 5,000 and, and they liked it when he raised Lazarus. And then he died on the cross and the Jews said, this cannot be someone who was powerful. This is actually someone who was weak because, look, he's dead. He's hanging on a cross. And the Romans put him there, the Romans that we hate. Uh, they're more powerful than Jesus. And we thought he was going to liberate our nation, and he was going to be this great conqueror, and now he's dead. There's no power in this Jesus. And they stumbled at the crucifixion. The Greeks, on the other hand, they looked at the crucifixion, and they said, that's idiotic. That is so stupid that you would worship this Jesus as a god. Look, he hung on a cross, and then they buried him in a grave. In fact, there's this really famous um, drawing that's still available to us, uh, a famous Roman drawing, and it shows a worshiper, and he's standing before a crucified figure. And the crucified figure has the body of a man and has the head of a donkey. And there's an inscription that we can still read today, and it says, Alexamenos worships his God. That was the Greek perspective. This Jesus, he, it's, it's, it's as dumb as, I mean, He's as dumb as a donkey hanging on a cross. That's what they said. That's how stupid it was. It's foolishness. They stumbled at the crucifixion. But, verse 24 tells us, to the ones who are called, whether they're Jews or Greeks, both Jews and Greeks, to the called ones, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the power of God that believers see in the cross contradicts what the Jews said was weakness. Jesus was the power of God. And not only was he the power of God, he's the wisdom of God. And so that countered what the Greeks thought was foolishness. 
today, our humility in our doctrine begins at the cross. Because at the cross, as believers, we have to come to grips with the fact, was this a powerful display of amazing wisdom, or was this weakness that was idiotic? Those are our two options before us today. And everyone in our world has embraced one of those two approaches to the cross. It's either wisdom and power, or it's foolishness that's stupid and weak. Our humble orthodoxy, our right attitude about right doctrine starts at the cross because at the cross, we are emptied of our own perspective and we embrace what God has said. We also boast not only in the, in the wisdom and in the power of God, but we also boast in God's choice in that cross. The cross is such folly to some people that they absolutely reject it. Other people try to reinterpret the cross. Man, it can't mean that Jesus actually died. There were people in Paul's day, and, and they taught that uh, Jesus, his divinity left him right before he died on the cross. So that actually wasn't God dying. It was just a man dying. His, his divinity departed, and then this person died. They were trying to get around the, the point of the cross by reinterpreting it. Let's come up with a different way of understanding. And people are still trying that today. Let's, let's come up with a different way of understanding the cross. Many of you have accepted the truth of the gospel, but we can never forget the humility that we should have in that. You see, the word of the cross once seemed foolish to you as well. Because you, there are only two group, groups in the world. There are those who say it's folly or those who embrace its power. And one day you were a part of the group that said, that doesn't make any sense. And so your coming to the cross demands your humility. Our humility starts at the cross by saying, no, God's wisdom, God's power, that's what was on display. God's choice was on display. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers... Right, Paul's specifically talking to the Corinthians. It's easy for us to put ourselves in this verse. But, I mean, remember that Paul's talking to Corinthians. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's talking about those in the Corinthian church was largely made up by slaves, um, by people who had been outcast. Um, the, the early Christian church was not built on the back of the great philosophers, um, of the most wealthy and powerful, influential people in the Roman government. Um, the early church was started, and the Corinthian church was started, by people who the world said, man, you're foolish, and you don't have much power. And listen to this echo of God chose. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Again, notice the wisdom contrast and the strength contrast. And God picked out what was weak and not wise in the society. Why? Because again, he wants to encourage us to boast in the choice of God and not in ourselves. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. The world says, that's nothing. You're a nobody. You don't matter. And, and God chose those kind of people to bring to nothing things that are. And there was a reason. And verse 29 tells us the reason. Why would God do this, this choice? Right, there's a reason God chose the people he did in Corinth for salvation. And the reason is verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's concern in salvation is that nobody else steal his glory. He wants the boasting to be in himself and in his power and in his greatness. And this is not the only passage that tells us about that. We know that by grace you've been saved through faith and that not yourselves. It's the gift of God. Why would God do it that way? Why would he make it? the gift of God, and not of works. Not of works, so that what? So that no one would boast. That's the point of salvation. We are emptied of 
of any reason to say, I deserve this, I earned this, I merited this. You see, humility starts at the cross. That's where it starts for you as a believer, where you're emptied of your own pride and of your own works and where you say, I could not earn this amazing salvation. That's where humility starts. Let me just encourage you that your vocabulary ought to reflect your boasting in God's choice. It's so easy when we give our personal salvation testimonies that they become the presentation of us and, and I. And certainly, it's certainly right and appropriate that our testimonies are unique to ourselves. But it's so important for us to remember that our salvation is about when God drew us to himself, when God opened our eyes, when God gave us faith. Instead of, well, when I figured out the way of salvation or um, when I finally Instead of all this emphasis on I, let's remember that God is the one who has chosen and caused this salvation. He gets the glory. He's the one who did it from start to finish. So we praise him. We boast in him. We boast in his choice. God's salvation plan is specifically designed to overthrow our pride at every turn. Specifically built that way. Not only do we boast in God's wisdom and his power, in his choice, but we also boast in the person of Christ. End of chapter 1 tells us in verse 30 that God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Where did your life come from? It didn't come from you. It came from God, right? That's a statement of humility. That's a perspective on ourselves. God is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. God is the one who made the message of the cross so appealing to you. And let you see its wisdom. God is the one who gave you righteousness. Who declared you righteous. He's the one who grants your sanctification. Your holiness. He's the one who gives that to you. And your redemption. I mean Christ is our savior. We are not the savior of ourselves. And so humility starts at the cross. Verse 31 says. Therefore as it is written. Let the one who boasts. Boast in the Lord. It's a quote from Jeremiah. uh, A familiar verse. And in Jeremiah he's talking about Yahweh. And this verse directly applies that to Christ. It's a powerful statement about who Christ is. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And if we're going to boast, let us boast that we know and understand him and not ourselves. Because humility and doctrine starts at the cross. It's the beginning place. Well, we also need to see this morning that that humble orthodoxy starts at the cross, but it also bows before the source of truth. We move on to chapter number two. And Paul is going to turn the Corinthians' attention to God's power in the presentation of truth, how he went about declaring the truth to them. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with all that looks amazing and impressive. Instead, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to have one message, one message alone, and that was Jesus Christ and that he was crucified on a cross. That's the doctrine part, okay? That's orthodoxy. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And look look what Paul was like when he came to Corinth in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He comes to them and he says, man, when I came to you, whether it was because of physical difficulty at this point or just his attitude as he came to Corinth, I was trembling, I was scared, I was frightened. I didn't come with all the things that made you think this is such an amazing word. Instead, he said, I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's a legal word. It has the the idea of the complete proof. I came in complete proof of the spirit and of power. 
And it wasn't because I was so impressive in how I gave you this truth. It was because of the content of the message and not because of the messenger. And why was that? Well, verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's another statement of humility. Paul saying, look, when I came to you, I didn't come with some big slick gimmicks and, and I didn't come to coerce you into salvation. I came and I presented the truth of the word of God to you and you responded. You see, we should even have humility as we see God's power in the presentation of truth. And there is definite application for us as a church and, and for you as individuals. And that is that we should value accuracy in the presentations of truth that we hear and not slick gimmicks or fancy productions. Um, we value, because we value orthodoxy, we, re, we value humility in the pursuit of that orthodoxy. We don't value sloppiness and uncarefulness. And certainly Paul's not saying, I didn't care about what I said and I never thought it through. He's just saying, I didn't match up to what you thought was a great Greek philosopher and I didn't need to because I was just giving you the word of truth. When the messenger takes center stage instead of the message, we should be concerned. When you're reading a book and it becomes more about the guy who's writing the book than the content, you should be concerned. When you hear a radio preacher or see someone on TV or listen to a sermon here and it becomes more about the person speaking instead of the content of the message, we should be concerned because we have to embrace humble orthodoxy. In other words, right doctrine that's matched with a right attitude. And Paul says, I demonstrated that what I came to you, when I came to you, I came in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's humility. Paul says, I didn't come in my own wisdom. And so even the presentation of truth ought to reflect humility. Not only the presentation of truth, truth but, but the source of truth itself should drive our humility. We should praise God's spirit for the revelation of truth. Look in verse number six. Paul says, he's clarifying. I'm not saying I didn't say anything wise. It was just his manner. He says, verse six, yet among the mature, among believers, we do impart wisdom. He says, I didn't just come spouting off ridiculous nonsense. There was wisdom. But what, what kind of wisdom? Well, it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He says, it's not an earthly kind of wisdom. It's a different kind of wisdom. We impart, verse 7, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What was the secret wisdom that Paul declared? Well, Paul was declaring the secret wisdom, the plan of God, that the church be made up of both Jew and Gentile, and that the cross was the way of salvation. The Jews definitely thought that Jesus was coming to bring a political salvation. And Paul says, no, what he revealed to us was that salvation was from our sins, and it was for all people, not just for Jews. And he says, if, if the rulers of this age had understood that truth, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Never would have happened because they would have embraced him for what he was, their savior from all of their sin. But they were blinded. And verse 9 tells us, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear had heard, ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. A lot of times we just take that verse right out of its Corinthian context and we just stop right there and we say, man, God has plans that we never know. We've never heard and we've never seen and we won't until it happens. All right. Is that what this verse is saying? Well, no, it's not. Because look at the next word, next verse. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what the heart of man hasn't even imagined, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us. How? Through the spirit. So this verse is not a verse that says that there are things that we don't know about that are hidden from us. This is a verse that says we have revelation. And it comes through the spirit. Right? What is the source of our right doctrine as a church? And for you as an individual, 
The source of right doctrine is the Spirit of God who has spoken in, in this book. He is the source of truth. And that's, that should bring humility to us. I'm not the source of truth. Adam's not the source of truth. Our, our church doctrinal statement is not the source of truth. The source of truth is the Spirit of God and the revelation that he has given to us. And that demands humility from us because far from a man-made religion and apart from the own tweaks that we're bringing in, in our church and, and we're going we're gonna to set this thing up according to what we think doctrine is, no, the source of right doctrine is the word and not our own imaginations and not what we've dreamed up. Humility says doctrine, right doctrine, comes from the spirit. And that's why we weigh all of what we say is doctrinally correct through the word of God. We don't filter it through our own grid and say, man, I, I don't like that part of doctrine or I'm going to figure out a way around that. We say, what does the word say about this? That's, that ought to be our approach in humility because we praise God's spirit for the revelation of truth not relying on ourselves. Believers can claim no special skill or insight into right doctrine, only that God has revealed truth to us. All right? So we don't walk around going, yeah, I finally got this thing figured out. I'm so smart. I'm so wise. Um, my church is so great. We go, no, God's spirit has revealed truth to us. And so we embrace that truth because the spirit is the source of the right doctrine. And that has to meet humility in our hearts and in our speech we're humble not because we're the source of truth but because god's spirit is he has revealed these things to us and he's done it in his word not in some secret and hidden way he's done it in a way that we can all read we can all study and share and say yeah that's the truth according to the word of god so the source of truth points us to humility all right the last thing i like to consider this morning when it comes to the idea of a humble orthodoxy is that a, that a humble orthodoxy believes the truth about man, all right? Humility begins at the cross and it bows before the one true source of truth, but also believes the truth about ourselves. And flip over to the end of chapter three in verse number 18. Paul basically um, interjects some thoughts about the Corinthians not being ready to hear this truth uh, as well as encouraging um, those who tell the truth to build on the right kind of foundation um, with gold and silver reminds the Corinthians that they are God's temple and that God's spirit is with them. And so in verse number 18, he says, because of all these things, let no one deceive himself. Avoid self-deception. All right. And when he says, let no one deceive himself, has the idea, let no one go on deceiving himself. In other words, you already are. So you need to quit. You need to stop. Stop deceiving yourselves. What is the self-deception that Paul's concerned about? He says, if anyone, amongst you think, anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. We need to believe the truth about man. And the truth about man is that we are not so wise as we think we are. We are not so great as we think we are. In fact, if you're going to be a believer, you're going to have to embrace truth that the world says is foolishness. I mean, really, how many of you have ever seen someone come back from the dead? That's ridiculous. Well, you cannot reject the truth of the resurrection and be a believer. You have to embrace what the world says looks like folly. And it is just so easy for us as people to trust in ourselves, to trust in man. And it's been easy for the Christian church to go down this exact same path. Uh, it happened in the in the big psychological movements um, that really 
kicked into gear in the 70s and 80s where trust became in, in psychology. It's happening today with all of the self-help material that's available. I don't know how many of you get uh, book catalogs. Maybe that's a weird thing reserved for people like me who keep them in business. But I get these Christian book catalogs, right? And uh, I have to only go to certain pages in there because if I read the whole thing, it's, just, it's bad for my wife, it's bad for my family, uh, because I just get so irate. Uh, you read these Christian, these Christian catalogs, and they tell you about all these Christian books that, uh, you know, 10, 10 steps to improve your self-image, um, 14 ways to value your own self-worth, um, 18 steps to a more successful marriage. Um, there are all these, I mean, there are more self-help books available right now on more topics that have a Christian spin than ever in the history of the world. I mean, we're just producing this drivel at an alarming rate. And you could get your hands on, on any amount of it that you want. The Christian perspective of man is not, man, if we can just come up with a new idea and a better way, let's, let's, reinvent, let's reinvent what we do in the church. Let's reinvent how we look at sanctification. Uh, let's trust ourselves to come up with a new and better way. I mean, that's the pursuit of our day and the Christian church. And it might be something that you've even been sucked into. Um, and you just have to get your hands on the next great parenting book, all right? Uh, I went to, I mean, Christian bookstores are about as bad for me to go into as they are these catalogs. I went into a Christian bookstore not that long ago in Fresno, and uh, the featured book, like when you walked in the door, it was called A New Child by Friday. And the back cover, just the back cover of this book, promised me that if I would follow this guy's simple six-step program, that I would have a whole new kid by Friday who would listen to me, who would obey me, who would be submissive, who wouldn't throw temper tantrums at the grocery store. Basically, I'd have the perfect kid if I just followed his five steps. And if I started on Monday, I could have that kid by Friday. All right. Um, we, then there are people that are snapping this stuff up because we are enamored with man's wisdom and man's approach to life. And so we go for the next step and the next philosophy and the next program. And, and there's just this endless pursuit of that kind of thing. Look, if we're going to be people who celebrate humble orthodoxy, we're going to have to be people who understand the truth about people. And the truth about people is we're not nearly so wise, we're not nearly so powerful as we pretend that we are. In fact, God's word has the answers, and, and it's not locked in some deep new plan that no one even imagined until last week when this book was produced, all right? Paul says, look, there are some ways that you're going to have to become a fool to some people. And it's become... It's become fashionable in the church today to celebrate uncertainty and, and to say, man, I, I just don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and we all say, well, that's, oh, that's so humble. That's so great, brother. Yeah, you, you just don't know if Jesus really did rise from the dead. And, and you're just not sure if, if salvation is only by grace. And, and that's fine. And, and you want to you wanna celebrate the fact that there are many religions all across the world. And who are we to say that the Buddhists are wrong? And that's so humble of you. That's such a great thing for the church. This is not a great thing for the church. This is, this is the opposite of orthodoxy, which is heresy. All right? This is deception. And it's because we want to say, look, there's so many different religions in the world. How can, how can we be the only ones who are right? See, I'm just being humble. Because all of those other people, surely they can't all be wrong. Right? And you have to go back to the word of God. And the word of God says, actually, there is only way that's right. And it demands that we say, all right, then the collective consciousness of our world and all of its religions, they can be wrong. And their wisdom, if it fights against scripture, then their wisdom is actually foolishness because scripture wins the day. 
okay? That's a humble approach. And in and, and our society, in our world, people would say, that's the opposite of humility. That's intolerant, and, and how dare you say that you're the only one that's right? And what's the answer to that question? How dare you say that you're the one that's right? Well, how dare you is that you say, beginning at the cross, I humbled myself to a person who is Jesus Christ. And I submitted to him as the source of all truth through his spirit. And now, not because I'm so wise of myself, it's actually the opposite of pride in myself. It's actually humility that says, no, I don't celebrate my own way. I celebrate the way of God. And I'm humbly submissive to what he has to say. So I'm not condemning you from my ivory tower. I'm saying the word of God says this is true. So it's true. We have to avoid self-deception in our view of ourselves and of people. We need to avoid self-deception. We also need to stop boasting in men. Another straight command from verse 21. Paul says, so let no one boast in men. I mean, he couldn't be any more clear. Let nobody boast in men. And why? Well, he says, all things are yours, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So these people that the Corinthians wanted to claim as this is just mine. Paul says, no, all those people are for your benefit, whether they're the people or he broadens out the world or life or death or the present or the future. All these things are yours. And so they're not what's most important. Um, we don't put we don't put Paul and and Peter on center stage and say we bow before them because they're actually only means to God's ends. God's ends are what is most valuable, Paul's saying, not, not God's means. It's not the messenger. So how should we regard the messenger? Well, chapter 4, verse number 1 tells us, this is how one should regard us. All right, remember, when Paul says us, he's talking about himself as an apostle and the, and the missionary team that he gathered around him. You know how he said the Corinthians should look at him? This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God says, this is how you should look at us, the apostle, one who gave us more New Testament books than, than any other. I'm a slave. And he uses a unique word for slave that I'm sure you, you've heard described before, a word that was also applied to the guy who was the under rower on a ship, the, the lowest of the low. He's at the bottom of the ship rowing, and he's in the dark, and he's chained down there, and he never gets to see the light of day. He's a worthless slave. They would put him down there a lot of times because they were going to die. And so you put the guys down there who were worthless. You put them down there. You use them until they're dead. You throw them overboard. You put the next guy down there. All right. That was the idea. And, it, and that term expanded to mean more than that. It, it turned into just your normal, ordinary slave. But that's what Paul says. That's how you should look at me as the apostle. I'm a slave. I mean, that's humility. Because Paul prizes the doctrine and not the messenger. Paul says, Look, you should regard us even as apostles. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm his slave, and I'm a steward of the mystery of God. In other words, I'm someone who keeps it. I'm someone who is required to be faithful in how I share it and how I take care of it. But I'm just, I'm just the steward. I'm just the keeper of the truth. And I keep the mystery of God. In other words, the truth of the gospel. That's how you should view me, Paul says. And that perspective has to filter down to today as well. Um, what is most important at Grace Church is, is not the messenger. Uh, it's, it's not whether you are of Adam or you are of David or you are of Dave Muxlow or any of the other elders that might come down the road. Um, the messenger is not what is preeminent. The message is humble orthodoxy says, I don't prop up a person and, and follow this person. 
I'm following a message that comes from God. Because right doctrine doesn't come from an individual, not even, not even from an elder. Right doctrine comes from the Spirit of God, and it's found in the Word of God. And so we have to have a right perspective, even on leadership. We have to stop boasting in men. If we want to sully and tarnish the greatness of the glory of God's true doctrine, then all we have to do is start boasting in men and start elevating servants into the preeminent limelight. And we will quickly distract and detract from the glory of God. Paul, as the apostle says, don't put me, don't put me up there. I don't want, I don't, don't put my face on your orthodox billboard. I'm just the slave. I, I'm, I'm just the steward. It's, it's the content that matters. We must avoid deceiving ourselves about ourselves, and we need to stop boasting in men, as Paul has said. Well, in chapter 4, verse number 6, he gets to the conclusion, and he says, here's, here's the application. Here's why I've been doing all this. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. This is for your own good, he tells them. And, and I've used myself and Apollos, who you have been wrongly exalting, and I did that for a reason that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I mean, Paul is attacking pride at every level, and he is, he is calling for humility, even on our perspective of leadership and of doctrine. In verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? All right, Who's the one that, that makes you guys different from anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And, and that is a right closing application for us this morning. What do you have this morning that you did not receive? Your doctrine? Did you invent that yourself? Were, were you so wise that you came up with a way of salvation and, and you submitted to it out of your own wisdom and out, out of your own mind? No, you received it. You received the truth of God's word. It's not something that you invented yourself and can take the credit for. And Paul says, if then you received it, all right, if you received orthodoxy, from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why would you act as if you were the sole proprietor of orthodoxy? Why would you pretend that somehow you are the source of truth? Why would you boast in yourself or in any other teacher as if they were the source of truth? Paul says, stop acting like you did not receive your spiritual blessings. When you boast as though you have not received, you leave out the giver. You cut out the giver in that picture. When, when, you start ta- when you start pretending that the truth that you hold dear is, is something that, that you came up with yourself and that, and that belongs to you, you leave out the person who gave it to you. And that would be God in his spirit. And so you take away from the glory of God instead of promoting it. True orthodoxy, true doctrine always creates humility and not pride. Because true doctrine says, let's go back to the cross. The cross was not a place where human wisdom and power was on display. It was a place where God's wisdom and God's power was on display. When it comes to the source of truth, the truth that I hope you hold dear, and we care about truth here, and and we want you to know it better and learn it better and live it out better, but the source of that truth uh, is not found in in a church hierarchy. Uh, It's not found in our tradition. The source of our truth is found in the word of God, and that's why we can hold it with humility and yet with conviction. Because the source is from the Spirit. We must remember that this truth that we hold, we also must apply to 
ourselves and to our leadership. Um, people will disappoint you. People will fail you. People don't have all of the wisdom to live out a consistent Christian worldview or to fabricate one. Our Christian perspective has to come from doctrine. And so we don't elevate a person to the place of preeminence. Um, we don't lift up a system of thought to the preeminence. We lift up this message to the preeminence because the message matters, this orthodox message, the right doctrine, it matters, and yet it matters that we hold it in humility. Let me, let me please just, just encourage all of us to return to a humble perspective of ourselves and the truth that we hold. We cannot embrace the, the popular thinking in our day that says that doctrine doesn't matter and that a generous way of approaching doctrine is to let any doctrine in and to say it's all fine and it's all good. That's not generosity, that's heresy. And yet at the same time, let's not join those who would promote themselves and their view of themselves and their doctrine that tarnish the glory of God, that actually hides the fact that God is the source of this truth. He is the one who receives the glory for this truth. Let's hold tightly to doctrine and you know, let's present it and live it in humility.